But dear ones, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we'll spend some time in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Again, that's Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? Hear now the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And when they said, And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our holy triune God, we thank you for uh, giving us your word, for revealing your will to us in it. We pray, O Lord, that as we study your word, you would attend to it by your Holy Spirit, that we might see Jesus Christ clearly in this passage of Scripture, that we might understand what it means for Christ to be King, we thank you, O Lord, for this, your word, and pray that you would bless us now in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, it's early January in the year 49 BC, and Julius Caesar, his entire army arrayed around him, stands on the banks of a small stream contemplating the consequences of his next step. That stream, the Rubicon, stood between Caesar's land of Gaul and Italy. Should Caesar cross it, should he take that next step, he would be committing an act of treason. He would plunge the whole Roman Republic into the turmoil of a civil war that would ultimately lead to the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire, with Caesar at its head. The British historian Tom Holland, in his book Rubicon, about the fall of the Roman Republic, says, quote, The Romans had a word for such a moment, that moment which faced Caesar. Discrimin, they called it, an instant of perilous and excruciating tension, when the achievements of an entire lifetime might hang in the balance, end quote. Caesar's next move would determine the course 
of history. And in some ways, he seemed to have understood the significance of that event. Holland then goes on to say, quote, Narrow and obscure the stream may have been, so insignificant that its very location was ultimately forgotten, yet its name is remembered still. No wonder. So fateful was Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon that it has come to stand for every fateful step taken since. End quote. In Luke's account of Christ's triumphal entry, an event that is depicted in all four Gospels of the New Testament, which is a rarity. In this event, we see our Savior on the precipice of crossing His own Rubicon, in a way. Christ is about to enter into Jerusalem in a public display of His glory, with His disciples and others worshiping Him and declaring Him to be King. For Christ, after this entry into the city, there is no turning back. Once he makes this kingly entry into Jerusalem, he will be in the public eye like never before. And yet even still, Christ our Savior knowingly sets in motion the final events that will, in the space of a few short days, lead to his arrest, his trial, and ultimately his crucifixion. But the larger context to this very important event in the life of Christ goes back in many ways to the transfiguration of Christ, which we see in Luke chapter 9. That transfiguration, remember, was when Christ took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and went up on a mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Luke tells us that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. There, the disciples saw Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. You remember, if you know this story, you remember that Peter, in his excitement at all that he is seeing, suggests that he build for, for them uh, three separate tents, and that Moses and Elijah and Jesus stay on the mountain with the disciples forever, eternally basking in the glory of God and enjoying the company of these exalted guests. Peter knew, because Christ had just told his disciples before the transfiguration, what was going to happen to our Lord. Peter knew that Christ would, as Christ himself says, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And even though he knew this, Peter, just a few days later at the transfiguration, suggests that Christ and the disciples stay on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. The 19th century Scottish minister, Hugh Martin, wrote in his excellent book, uh, The Shadow of Calvary, this passage which comes in his section on the agonies that Christ endured in the Garden of Gethsemane. Martin writes this, quote, If Peter could have gotten his way... He would have been on the Transfiguration Mountain still, and there never would have been the agony of Gethsemane. He would have made tabernacles and dwelt there, enjoying the glory and shrinking from the shame. But then this proposed arrangement of his would have cost the world's salvation. For it was not amidst glory 
and the radiance of the holy mountain. But amidst the darkness and anguish of the garden and the desertion of the cross, that redemption was achieved and sealed. Thus the foolishness of God is wiser than men. In his infinite wisdom, God incarnate, Christ our Lord, knew what must be done. And so just after Christ comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus, quote, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would set his face like flint. He would not be moved. Christ was determined And from that time on, Christ made it his goal to go to Jerusalem. And as he traveled the rest of the way throughout the land of Israel, that's exactly what he did. And so in our passage this morning, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, the triumphal entry of Christ, we find Christ on the precipice, about to take that final step to cross the Rubicon. He's putting together the final pieces required to enter Jerusalem, to do what he needs to do in the city, and then to atone for the sins of all God's people outside the city gates. And his entry into the city, as we see here in this passage, is a regal entry. For Christ is entering the sacred city of Jerusalem as its true and rightful king. This morning, we're going to explore this narrative by looking first at what it reveals about the knowledge of Christ, our Savior, before then looking at the public nature of Christ's ride into Jerusalem, and then finally seeing what it means to say that Christ is king, as the disciples say here in verse 38. First, let's explore something of the knowledge of Christ our Savior. In verses 28 through 34, we see Christ telling his disciples what they must do. Here in these verses, Christ is, is, is confidently telling them exactly what must happen. He knows what needs to be done and how it must be accomplished. Notice in these verses that Christ tells the disciples precisely what will happen, even down to the very words that the cults owners will use when they see the disciples untying it. Christ, our Lord, knows where that donkey will be, what its owners will say, and so he guides his disciples every step even before they set out on this task. What should we make of this? What should we make of this knowledge of Christ, this, this foreknowledge even of Christ to, to, who, who knows what, the, what is going to happen and tells his disciples precisely what will happen. We certainly shouldn't think about it like some liberal commentators do, that Christ secretly went ahead of his disciples into this town and made prior arrangements with the cult's owners to borrow it and then gave his disciples these instructions. That's what they say, that Christ uh, went in when his disciples weren't looking and made arrangements and came back just to... I guess, um, astonish and surprise his disciples. Um, he, he tells them this, what, what he has already done as if he hadn't done it. No, that is not what happened. And this clearly ignores the plain reading of Scripture that's right in front of us. Luke tells us that Christ and his disciples came together 
to Bethany and Bethphage, and then he immediately sends out his disciples. Also, if we if we are, are given to understand that Christ had made this prior arrangement, why would the owners ask what the disciples are doing? They say there, um, why are you untying the colt? What are you doing with my donkey? <laughs> right? Um, surely, if the owners had made this prior arrangement, they wouldn't need to ask this question. They would know, because Jesus would have told them. No, something else is happening here. Christ is confident that the animal will be where he says it will be. And Christ knows exactly what is going to happen. The Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle says this, Knowledge like this is the peculiar attribute of God. Passages like these are meant to remind us that as Romans 9 verse 5 says, the man, Christ Jesus, is not only man. He is also God blessed forever. Christ is God, and as such, he possesses knowledge that mere humans do not. It's incredible that at the beginning of this passage, which highlights the kingship of Christ, he does something here that only God can do, which only then affirms the declaration that the disciples will make in just a few verses when they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, for he is God. Ryle goes on in his work, uh, Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke, to say that this knowledge of Christ should do two things to all people. It should terrify unbelievers and at the same time should comfort believers. The knowledge of Christ should terrify unbelievers. The knowledge of Christ, when rightly understood, is terrifying to those who are outside of Christ. Because Christ knows the hearts and intentions of all people. Christ has intimate knowledge of all that happens and knows the wickedness of the hearts and minds of unbelievers. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you do not have faith in Christ, you stand before God on your own. You stand before God condemned in your sin and misery because you do not have a mediator. The thoughts and intentions of your heart are laid bare before Christ, who knows all and who sees all. And Christ, Christ the King, will soon return to judge all the world, to condemn those who do not believe. Ryle says that unbelievers may deceive men all their life long, but they cannot deceive Christ. You cannot deceive Christ. Christ. And so if you are not in Christ, if Christ peers into your heart with his uh, infinite knowledge and sees that you are still in your own sin, repent. Repent and believe in the Lord and King, Jesus Christ. This knowledge of Christ then terrifies unbelievers, but it also serves to comfort believers. Dear believer, Christ knows the depravity of your heart and he loves you still. If you are in Christ, then Christ died for you. Christ gave himself up for you. Your sin is no longer counted against you because it was nailed 
Christ's cross. This should take this should be a wonderful comfort to you. Christ knows you and loves you still. Again, Ryle, quote, the thought of Christ's perfect knowledge should comfort all true-hearted Christians and quicken them to increase diligence in good works. The master's eye is always upon them. He knows where they dwell and what are their daily trials and who are their companions. There is not a word in their mouths or a thought in their hearts, but Jesus knows it altogether. Let them take courage when they are slandered, misunderstood, and misrepresented by the world, end quote. Christian, take comfort. Rest in the perfect knowledge of your Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And in understanding the knowledge of Christ, go forth and follow him. Follow his will for your life, which is your obedience. So Jesus in this passage, tells his disciples where the cult will be and what they must say to its owners. And so they follow his command. They retrieve that cult and bring it to Jesus. Jesus then sits on the donkey's back and rides down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. Throughout the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus early on uh, tells his followers that, and the, the people that he heals and even the demons to stay silent about what he has done. There's this uh, sort of motif of secrecy that comes up throughout the Gospels where Jesus, who says over and over uh, in the early parts of the Gospels that his time has not yet come, so he commands that his work remain a secret until that appointed time. He will uh, all throughout the Gospels, frequently withdraw from the crowds and tell those that he heals to make sure that no one knows what he did for them. But now, in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, Christ is publicly displayed for all to see as he travels into Jerusalem. Verse 35, they brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. Verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This is not a private affair. Christ is seated upon a donkey and his disciples are crying out with a loud voice. The whole multitude of his disciples. So it's not just the 12 apostles, but all of those, the thousands of people that have followed Jesus all throughout his ministry are here now rejoicing with a loud voice, praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen Christ do. Riding on a donkey in this way was a very public act. And this is markedly different from Christ's approach, as we said earlier in the Gospels. Christ changes his approach here, though, because he knows full well that the appointed time has come, that the mission his father sent him to earth to accomplish will very soon be complete. And so, on this final approach into Jerusalem, Christ wants to be seen. So he sits on top of a donkey, making sure that he's above the heads of the crowd, 
and therefore visible to all those around him. The attention and the voices of the people that are following him are all directed toward Jesus. He is the center of everything that's happening here, crying out as they're crying out with a loud voice. As Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, but the question we can ask then is why? Why is Jesus changing his tactic now? If he knows that he's soon going to be arrested, wouldn't he want to stay out of the spotlight more than ever? Wouldn't he want the attention to be put on someone else? We certainly would if we knew what was coming, if we knew what was required of us. If we knew we had a big task to accomplish, we wouldn't want people's attention on us. We would want it on someone else. Why would Jesus draw more attention to himself? Christ rides into Jerusalem publicly because he was appointed to die publicly. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 tells the Jewish and Roman leaders that none of the gospel events took place in a corner. None of it happened off in a a little sector where there were only a few uh, people witnessing the events. No, Christ's triumphant entry was plain for all to see because it was essential that his atoning death be plain for all to see. Not only Does Christ, as we've said, draw attention to himself by riding on top of a donkey, but his disciples and followers are also publicly and loudly proclaiming him to be their king, rightfully attributing kingship and glory to Christ, our great God. The triumphal entry of Christ then declares Christ to be king of all, the one who has come in the name of God. Of the Lord. This honorific belongs to Christ, for he is to be worshiped and adored, for he is our God and our King. In many ways, this triumphal entry, this event in the life of Christ, was probably an incredibly exciting one for Jesus' disciples. They had long anticipated that great day when Christ would declare himself to be king of Israel and would overthrow the rulers, overthrow their Roman oppressors and usher in the kingdom of God, setting himself up as monarch over all. That was the kind of king that Israel had long expected, the one who would put on his armor, who would mount his horse and would ride into Jerusalem with an army of soldiers close behind. Israel, the disciples even, wanted a worldly king, one who would bring the sword of retribution and justice upon their Roman oppressors. But this is not what Jesus does. Instead of riding into Jerusalem on top of a horse as the conquering king, he rides in on top of a donkey, a gentle and humble and lowly king, entering the city not to conquer, but instead to be conquered, to subject himself to the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, and to die at their hand. You see, we often want to paint Palm Sunday as this Um, 
wonderfully idyllic day. And this triumphal entry is a great declaration of Christ as king, which it is. But we can too often talk about the triumphal entry of Christ to the neglect of or by ignoring what's going to happen just a few days later. We can think like the disciples that this is Christ's full and final declaration of His kingship. But Christ, we understand, is entering to die. He is about to be arrested, put on trial, beaten, and crucified. And so the disciples don't understand that Christ is not coming and never intended to come as the conquering king who would ride on top of the horse and and slay all of his and their physical enemies. Now, the disciples were still thinking too much about this world, that they didn't see the bigger picture of what Christ himself knows will come. It's interesting to look at the remainder of what's called uh, a holy week and see the change in attitude of the disciples. They go from this wonderfully... um, high moment of, of adoration of Christ as king into the very depths of despair on Good Friday when Christ is nailed to the cross. And they say, no, no, we didn't follow him. We weren't shouting Hosanna to our great king five days ago. All along the way, there's much confusion and misunderstanding. For even after this magnificent display, after Christ here receives the praise of the, cl- of the crowd as their rightful king of kings, as the son of God who is blessed forever, the disciples forget. They still think that he's going to bring the, sto- the sword instead of peace, that he's going to be that conquering king that Israel has always imagined instead of the humble and lowly king that he is. And we see this mindset sort of play out with the disciples' actions later in the week, particularly when we look at the Apostle Peter. Why else would Peter take a sword with him to to the Garden of Gethsemane, to this solemn time of prayer with Christ and the disciples if he didn't think that Christ was about to inaugurate the kingdom and conquer the Romans? He still thinks like all the other disciples, that Christ is going to usher in a physical kingdom here and now. And Peter uses his sword to violently defend Jesus when Christ is arrested. But Peter is chastened by Christ and told that his sword will kill him if he lives by it. Christ, we know, came to conquer, but not in the this-worldly way his disciples thought. Rather, Christ came to conquer hell, and sin, and death once and for all in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later. Christ's disciples, like you and me, were too often tempted to live by sight instead of by faith. They were too focused on this world, on the visceral things they could see and smell and taste and touch and didn't have the faith to be able to see past the tangible and fleeting things of this world and into the life of the world to come. Friends, are you like the disciples? 
Are you overly concerned about the things of this world? To be clear, we are called to be salt and light here in this world while Christ tarries. But there's a, and there's a, there's a fear that many Christians have of being, to use the cliche, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Meaning that we can be too often consumed with the thoughts of the world that, that Christ will usher in when he returns, that we lose sight of uh, the issues and the problems that are facing us and our neighbors in the here and now. That is a concern. But too often, in an effort to maintain some sort of sense of contributing to an earthly good, you and I can lose sight of heaven. The opposite can become true. We can become too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. We can become so easily consumed with thoughts of this world that we, we neglect the kingdom of God, which is not of this world. We can too easily fail to see beyond our own arm's reach, living as though the only important things are the ones that happen to us in the here and now. But this is to neglect the things of God, to forget that Christ is king. No, the ways of God are not the ways of man. The gospel of Jesus Christ regularly subverts expectations. For who would expect the cross? If you were planning redemption, is that how you would have done it? No. The cross is foolishness, as Paul says. Hanging up, on, up there on that tree, Christ looked to all the world to be utterly ruined and defeated. Just a few days after this, on Good Friday, the Roman soldiers knew what the crowd said about Jesus the previous Sunday. They heard the condemnation of Jewish leaders brought down upon Christ because of his claims. The soldiers, the Roman officials, and the whole crowd calling crucify him all knew that Christ's disciples thought Christ was king. They knew the disciples proclaimed him as their king and thought that Jesus would bring in the, the eschaton, would bring in the life of the world to come. The Roman soldiers knew that the disciples' hopes and dreams of conquering all their enemies, of conquering their Roman overlords themselves, rested on this man now standing before them under their power. And so the Roman soldiers, after they flogged him mercilessly. They put on his torn and tattered back a purple robe, a color of royalty. They beat onto his head a crown made of sharp thorns. They sarcastically declared him king of the Jews and bowed down in feigned reverence to him before driving nails into his hands and his feet. The Roman soldiers hung Christ upon that tree and watched him die, thinking that they finally heard the end of that insurrectionist from Galilee. But the cross, friends, is not the end of the story. For three days later, Christ rose gloriously from the dead. Christ's resurrection puts an end to the lie that Christ is not king or that the Romans were able to defeat him 
For it fully and finally declares that Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so while the disciples were surely defeated on Friday, on Sunday, they saw their Savior alive and recognized what Christ had been trying to tell them for three years, that his kingdom is not of this world and that the true king and, and that he is the true king over all that is, all that was, and all that will be. In his fantastic book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism, Jay Gresham Machen talks about the historical fact of the resurrection and why that's essential to the gospel proclamation. He says this, though, about the disciples, quote, those same weak, discouraged men, within a few days after the death of their master, instituted the most important spiritual movement that the world has ever seen. What had produced the astonishing change? What had transformed the weak and cowardly disciples into the spiritual conquerors of the world? Evidently, it was not the mere memory of Jesus' life, for that was the source of sadness rather than joy. Evidently, the disciples of Jesus, within the few days between the crucifixion and the beginning of their work in Jerusalem, had received some new equipment for their task. What that new equipment was is perfectly plain. The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was a historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, He is risen. Christ our Lord, that sinless, spotless Lamb of God, died. He was buried. He descended into hell. But that is not the end of the story. The Bible doesn't end. The gospel accounts do not end on Good Friday. No, three days after he was nailed to that cross and took your sin and mine upon his shoulders, Three days after Christ bore the unmediated wrath of God against sin, Christ rose from the dead. Bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he arose again. The resurrection of Christ declares, among many other things, that Christ is king. In Christ's resurrection, our great God shows that he has the power over sin and death and hell, and the devil. Christ our King is Lord of all. He is that long-expected Messiah. The resurrection proves that the disciples were not blasphemously attributing to Christ kingship. No, instead it shows that he truly is the King who must and shall be worshipped by all. For every knee in heaven and on earth will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and King, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our great God, our King, Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are even now ruling and reigning over all that exists. We thank you, O Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son to die and to be raised up again to new life three days later, conqueror and King over all. Thank you that Christ, our King, is Christ, our Savior, Christ, our friend, who loves us, who gave himself for us. We thank you, O God, for 
Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that you would give us faith in Christ, that our eyes would be fixed upon him alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, please stand with me as we sing our hymn of response.